we've been in this series for a few weeks now. It's called Upon Further Review. And so let me remind you of, of the goal and the intent of the series. I, our hope is that we would develop and engage uh, individually and maybe collectively some people that you know. Maybe you will do this with people that you are in community with. A daily habit of spiritual reflection as we hope to live and love like Jesus in this world. And so that's a big sentence, but what does it mean? It means that you and I put ourselves in a place where we're asking a question, maybe many questions. How are we doing? How's it going? How, how did today go? Um, how well did I love? Did I kind of meet the things that I feel like represent who Jesus is in this world? This is our hope and our desire. And this, of course, you would maybe presume or hope or maybe expect that it would be a part of most people's lives, but it isn't really because we get in the dailiness of life and then we just kind of do today. And many times we get to the end of the day and we think, whew, yeah, I'm glad that's done. I'm going to do it again tomorrow, but I'm not right now. This is, I'm going to do whatever I can do to, to kind of check out. And so it's, it's halftime in the series, if you will, okay? Um, we got a couple weeks left, three weeks ahead, you know, into it. This is week four. So just at this moment, before I get into today's message, it's halftime. So just a little little halftime speech about kind of where we're going, what we hope to get done. You know, we're kind of just going to take a breather. I mean, not really. The sermon's kind of long, but um, <laughs> what we want to do is just take a, take a beat and remind us what the goal is, where the end zone is, and what this is about. And it's important. It's important. Because if we're going to develop this habit, um, and the scriptures that we've pointed you to already kind of paint this picture. There are a few things that are necessary. And the first thing is just the intentional effort. This is why we went to all that athletic metaphor stuff that Paul wrote, that there's a race we're on. We want to be sure we're on the right race. That there's some effort that is being expended toward this end, toward this purpose, toward this goal of developing this daily habit. And it takes intentional effort. In other words, unless you make a decision that this is going to be a part of your life and you've kind of side and make a plan and doesn't mean that you hit every day. It may mean you hit one out of 10 days, but it's still going to take intentional effort. And that's important. It's important. We, we want the effort that we spend in this life to be worth something that goes beyond it. We, we don't, we're smart enough to know that we're in an eternal thing here. It's not about today and about what we want. And this isn't about us getting something right. It's about us walking with God. In fact, the goal is not that you would just be a better person or that you would do it better today than yesterday. That's not the goal. The goal always in this spiritual life and in your life is to have some experience and some union with God to be more connected to him, his purpose for you. You're an image bearer. You're made in his image. And so this effort that we would use our memory and our imagination to become more like Jesus in the way that we live and love. Uh, Socrates said it this way, that the unexamined life is not worth living. And this is a worthy statement, and it's something to ponder. And so we want to be thoughtful, and it takes some effort. But not only that, it takes helpful perspectives. And, and what we mean by that is this, is that you and I, we don't have all that we need to understand whether this is going well or we're headed in the right direction. We need the help of other people. And some of those people are folks that have lived before and they write about their, their story. And so we'll talk about that today. Some are the people that, people that live with you 
and they help you understand who you are because we don't always understand the whole picture. We need other perspectives and we need other folks to help us and guide us along the way and help us see things we don't see. When our boys were hitting the teenage years, I had enough friends that had teenagers and they said, you know, boy, all of a sudden, you know, our kids became teenagers and our, my relationship with them just came apart. It was awful. And I thought, well, you know, that's because that's your family. My family's different. It's not going to happen to us. And so I, I had been through some sort of little self-help seminar book thing. And, and I thought I would ask the boys what I felt like was a question that I knew the answer to and would help sort of solidify my position as a stellar dad. And so um, this was my perspective and my thought. So both boys, I asked them. It was a dinner time discussion. And I said, hey, uh, boys, I have a question for you. I want you to be honest with me. And the reason I wanted them to be honest with me is because I knew what they were going to (laughs) say. That's the only reason I wanted them to be honest. (laughs) And I said, uh, this is a question I asked them. Uh, Because I felt like I was different than my dad in many ways and maybe different than your dad. I don't know what your family was like. My question was this, what is it like on your end, in your experience, to disagree with me? And I, and I knew the answer was going to be, you know, oh, dad, I mean, you're like my friend. You know, this is great. When I disagree with you, we work it out together. And, and so I, I just was waiting for that so I could put that in my pocket as, you know, evidence of my good fatherhoodness. Uh, and so they looked at me and the look on their face was... You know, and they kind of looked at each other, was, this is a trap. Don't answer, <laughs> you know, this is a trap. Don't answer the question. And then I said, no, really, I, I, I want to know. I, wanna, I, I want you to tell me, and, and again, assured of the answer that I thought I would get. And so it came out. And our youngest was the first to say anything because, you know, he was naive. And <laughs> he thought he could answer me, you know, without recrimination and, and he said, well, I, I feel like when I disagree with you, you, you shut me down. And so that emboldened his older brother to, you know, step into the fray. And so a discussion ensued. And that discussion kind of indicated to me that, you know, my estimation of my relational skills with my soon-to-be teenage boys was a little different than, than I thought it was. You know, so I hollered at them and sent them to their rooms and... <laughs> Completely shut them down, of course. That'll never happen again. And so we need helpful perspectives because there's some things you don't know that you don't know, and you need some people around you. You need voices from the past. You need people. In the business world, they call this the 360, right? The reason they call it 360 is because there's people all around you that have a perspective on how you lead, who you are, how well you love, what kind of kindness you show. And we need all of these helpful perspectives, and we need that. And hopefully through this series, as you gain some helpful perspectives from a variety of voices, you're building a, or pondering, maybe considering a daily habit of spiritual reflection that will put you in a place of becoming more like Jesus, more close, intimate union with God. That's the only goal. That's the only goal. And, and not only that, but we also want to have a clear and intent pursuit. All these athletic metaphors aren't helpful if you're running the wrong race. None of your goals are helpful if you're headed toward the wrong end zone. Nothing will be of benefit to you unless you and I decide this is who we want to become. And so we have said that there are simple questions that help us move along this path, still in the halftime speech. 
And that those questions are, are sometimes as simple as, as we said last week, how was your day? And these questions unearth the values that we hold in very simple ways. They, they, they unearth what we hope for, what we desire. And when we listen to ourselves and the answers that we give to this question, it shows us in small ways where are you headed, what do you want, what are you looking for, what kind of life are you trying to build. And so this series, the idea behind the whole series is this, this larger idea that your direction, who you are becoming, is determined by small decisions that we make every day and the way that we live with each other and the goals that we engage in. How is your day might not unearth your goals. And so we might ask a larger, broader question. And it's this one. I've mentioned it once already. Who am I becoming? Now, this question's easier to answer. It's about today and what happened at lunch and all of that. This question's a little more involved and makes you be thoughtful and reflect a bit more. But this question is worth asking. And if you're going to build a habit of daily spiritual reflection about who you are becoming, then you're going to then dig down a bit further and discover your values and decide what's most important and what it would look like for you to become a more thoughtful representative of who God is in this world and the way he loves. And so this question, you begin to ask it, who am I becoming? It really, the foundation of it is this. If, if, if I look back over the last several weeks or maybe even months and I think about who I am becoming. And if, if I continue in that trajectory in the coming months, and all of a sudden now I've got a half a year of time that I'm pondering, I'm looking back, taking assessment, and I'm looking forward, the question would be, am I becoming more trusting of God or more suspicious of God? Am I becoming more forgiving or am I more likely to hold a grudge today than I was three months ago? Am I becoming more judgmental, or I'm becoming more patient with the people around me? What do people sense in their interactions with me? Am I growing more union with God, or am I distancing myself from his nature, his characteristics? And so all of these things, when we consider them, intentional effort, helpful perspectives, clear intent and pursuit, help us build this daily habit of reflection. Now, so the series will wrap up Super Bowl Sunday in, in a couple weeks. And when we wrap it up, hopefully we'll give you a couple tools next week and the week after that you may want to implement and make your own. But it's a big football day today, isn't it? So you're watching some games. Who's watching some games today? Okay, right. Who's standing by while other people are watching some games today? Yeah. And so the... The participants of the Super Bowl will be decided today. And and there'll be several times in the games where there'll be a referee that will be a result of. It's in the final two minutes and a play looks interesting. He's getting to want to check it out. They're all reviewed. Most of the scoring plays, possession plays, there's a whole list of plays that are reviewed naturally and automatically. But then every now and then a coach may reach into his sock or whatever and throw out a challenge flag. And when he does, this little red flag hits the ground, there'll be a review. And at that moment, a ref will walk up to a screen on the field and begin making a call. Now, it will appear when you watch it on your screen on TV as if this ref is reviewing a play, as if he's trying to decide 
what just happened. That's what it will appear like. But here's an open secret in the NFL, one that you need to be aware of. And if you want some of the details, you can chat with Marianne Havercade about it. She's fully apprised of the whole situation. That's not what he's doing. That's not what he's doing at all. In fact, all this ref is doing, I mean, he is staring at a screen. He's watching the play. But let me tell you where his mind is. His mind is focused on his ears because he is listening to a head official in New York tell him what decision he's about to make. How many of you knew that? Let me see your hands. Football geeks, unite. That's right. And so this has been the case for a few years now. For this to happen... There were a few key pieces of infrastructure that had to be put in place. Cisco had to revamp all of the internet capability of every NFL stadium across the country. And Blackhawk camera technology had to be installed at every NFL stadium across the country. And he is absolutely not making a decision right now. He is hearing what decision has been made for him. And it's being made for him at the Art McNally Game Day Central location in New York. And that's what it looks like. And it's pretty incredible. It's, it's absolutely astounding. And it's uh, named after Art McNally, one of the greatest refs in the history of the game, who recently passed away. In fact, he's the only NFL on-field official to be admitted to the NFL Football Pro Hall of Fame. The only one. Now, he wasn't admitted for his officiating because nobody would admit a ref for their officiating. He was admitted because of his administrative efforts in the officiating world. But on Sunday or Thursday night, or depending on the playoffs, any time an NFL game is in progress, this room is filled with an executive team of officials and replay officials and people that know how to operate this equipment and see every angle that you can see. They can't see anything you can't see. You see every angle available to them in the NFL replay on your big screen at home. And when you do, and when they do, it looks just like this on a Sunday. It's filled. And this man is making a decision. And he's one of the few executive refs that have the ability to make the call. And there's a reason why they do this. First of all, because they can. The technology exists that they can. But there's a reason why that every contested call, and even calls that aren't contested, pretty much every play in the NFL is reviewed from this place in New York. The reason that they do it this way is they know what you know. And you know what they know, and it's this. An accurate review requires multiple perspectives. And this isn't just true of football, right? So you already connected the analogy, metaphor, dots. It requires multiple people to say, nope, that's just not how I see it. And it's not just multiple people's opinions, it's multiple camera angles. So you've seen a replay and you've seen a one view and it's a crystal clear view, but it looks like he completely caught that ball until they show you the other angle and there's a little bit of tuft of grass that helped him bring it back in. And when this occurs, of course, then the call is made. And the ref on the field, well, they want you to look like he just looked at his little Microsoft Surface screen and figured this out, but he didn't. He didn't. It is committee decision-making at its finest. And the result, of course, is a better 
more efficient call. That doesn't mean they still don't blow it, because they do, but they blow it less. An accurate review requires multiple perspectives. So we want you to have multiple perspectives through this series. Because if you're going to build a habit of spiritual reflection and thoughtful engagement to consider how's it going, how'd that day at work go, how did my interaction with the kids go, what, what needs to shift, what needs to change, how is God shaping my heart to be more, you fill in the bank, you fill in the blank, patient, gracious, kind, generous. How is God helping me to become more like Jesus as time goes on? You need this. You need multiple perspectives. And so we gave you some homework last week. And if you weren't here, this was un, you blocked this out of the sermon last week. Uh, you can read it this week. So bonus for you. Um, we gave you the homework of reading the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. How many of you read it? Let's see. Who did their homework? How many of you started and thought, this is for the birds? Let me see your hands. <laughs> Come on. You started and quit. Okay. Just a few of you. That's good. I know there's more of you in here that started and quit, but you can take that up with God later. And so the reason why, I almost feel guilty giving you an assignment like this, especially with the weather week that we had. I mean, it's hard enough to feel positive about your world. And you start to read a book like Ecclesiastes and you begin to think, you know, well, you've been given to quote Solomon when he said, what's the use? Which he says many times through the book. What's the point? And there's this sense that, oh my goodness, I don't even know why I would even bother. And he begins to paint a picture of life. And so this is how we gain multiple perspectives. Solomon, a very wise man. And if you read it, you might be thinking, if Solomon doesn't have a chance, what chance do we have? And so let's give you some context and allow the words of Ecclesiastes or the content of it to maybe guide you down a path of more thoughtful reflection. We started here last week. The words of the teacher at the very beginning of the book, son of David, king in Jerusalem. It it is suspected that this was Solomon, but there are some different views on who was the author, some other descendant of David or so on. For our purposes today, we'll say it was Solomon. And he begins this, this compilation of his life this way. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Not a hopeful beginning. And it doesn't really improve from there throughout the book. There are nuggets, there are pieces, there are glimpses. But for us to grasp the context, let me give you again what we gave you last week, the context of this word meaningless. The, uh, the Hebrew word is hevel. Say it with me. Hevel, very good. And it means this, meaningless, I don't know, I think that's a harsh English word for it. It means that life is temporary and fleeting. And you know this, nobody in here expects to live in their physical body forever. The way we say it today, in 100 years, all new people, it means we're not here, right? And so we know this, we understand it. It is temporary, it is fleeting. But not only that, the things we experience are temporary and fleeting, and they're very difficult to understand, They're enigma, and they're also paradox. We start to think we have life figured out, and we think, well, hard work equals success, and then somebody who's lazy gets promoted above us, and we find life to be a paradox. We've been told that if we live healthy lives, we'll avoid disease, we'll avoid this malady or this situation, and all of a sudden, it happens to somebody we know and love who's in the best shape of their lives, and they drop dead of a heart attack. And so we begin to look at life, and we say, it doesn't seem to make sense. They're 
contradictory ideas. And all of this, while many of us would not say that life is meaningless, surely I hope not, we would all say, but we get this, it's temporary, it is fleeting, and it is a paradox. Life is an enigma. And so Solomon takes this idea and he begins to plumb the depths of what life is like. And he gives us a glimpse by writing a journal all about it. And he gives us, just a few verses after that verse I showed you, the point of his journal. And here it is. I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem, and I devoted myself to what? Search for understanding, he says, and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. In other words, what's his goal? What's his hope? He wants to look at life at large, and he wants us to look at it with him. And he wants to sort out what makes a meaningful life, what makes a fulfilling life, what makes a life worth living, what makes a life that when you get toward the end of it, you look back on it and say, that was good. I'm glad I did that. I think, I think what I accomplished was good. I like how it went. He's trying to say, when you consider your life, there's feel, it feels like there's at least a couple of options for you as you look back. One is regret. And the other would be satisfaction or pleasure or an understanding that things have gone well. And so if you're going to reflect on your life, he's saying, I want to know what makes for a meaningful life. Before going further, let's, let's at least say this about Solomon. We're going to critique a bit some of his words and his choices and some of the paths he went down. But it's important for us to recognize that what Solomon has given us in the book of Ecclesiastes is a journal that if you wrote it, it would never get published. And you would hope it would never get published. Because it would contain your missteps and your mistakes and your, all the things that you tried that didn't work and all the paths you went down that are, oh my goodness, just so egotistical or embarrassing. But Solomon wants us to read it because he's a collector of wisdom. He understands this. It, it, it represents the humility with which he began his life and his career as a person. When God asked him, what do you want? He said, Lord, I don't know how to govern your people, so give me wisdom. And I want you to hear within that just a deep sense of humility. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the record in Ecclesiastes. And I believe that he wrote it so that we would have, in many ways, several cautionary tales about the way to live our lives. And so he's looking for what makes a life worth living. And you get to learn from his perspective. His, it's really the ultimate instant replay book in all of scripture. It really is. And so he tries lots of things and he tells us about them right away. He starts with this. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. So he uses the plural to talk to himself, which is fine. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. And he does. And he pursues it. He decides that he wants to pursue this and pursue that. And if you know much about scripture, then you know that this is a piece of wisdom literature. But there are other books in the Old Testament that give us a historical record. One of those books is 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, you can read about... Solomon and many other details that aren't in Ecclesiastes about his life that help give context or texture to the story in Ecclesiastes. And throughout this entire book, he pursues many things. One of them's pleasure, 
but he's going to pursue all of these things, wealth and status, power and career and possessions or stuff, things that you have and can see and touch and feel. Or you could give some other labels to some of these things in Solomon's world, political power, political prowess, political strength. All of these things he begins to pursue because he has the means to pursue them. And as he pursues them, he points out the pitfalls and the shortcomings and the emptiness that results. It's an incredible tale and it has incredible texture to it. And as you begin to read about his life, it begins to at least beckon deep inside of you this this sense that this is something for me to ponder and reflect on. What have I been pursuing? What am I trying to build? Or maybe another way to say it would be, who am I becoming? And if I stay on the path that I'm on now, who will I be in a year, two years, three years? And as he pursues these things, he comes to some really great conclusions. Some of them are thoughtful and and meaningful, poignant even. Here's one of them as he talks about his work that he engaged in. So I decided that there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink. Can I get an amen? (laughs) And to what? Say it with me. Find satisfaction in work. This is good. In fact, if you are pursuing a career, you're in a vocation, and you spend your days working, you haven't retired yet, then you read this in the story of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's journal and you find some satisfaction in his conclusion because he has all number of things available to him, but he does some work. He engages in some work. And it's good to find satisfaction in your work. And there are these conclusions sprinkled all throughout the entire 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. But if you were reading along, then you may not have caught them. I mean, they sound positive and meaningful, but you may have been distracted by his other indictments about life. In fact, in the very same chapter, Solomon says this, I I find satisfaction in work, but then he also says this, I came to, say it with me, hate all my hard work here on earth. It's the very same chapter, and it's his perspective about work. In fact, his conclusion is this, all the work that I do, when I'm done with it, I'm going to hand it off to some idiot. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever felt that way about your coworkers. And I have no idea what they're going to do with it. They could completely ruin it all and decimate it. In fact, I've got it exactly how I want it. Some of you feel this way after you go on vacation, Right? You get things set up, you get things taken care of, and then you go away for a week and you come back and you feel like you have to start all over again. His conclusion is about his lifetime, and he thinks this. I'm going to work and work and work. I'm going to get it just the way I want it. And I hand it off to somebody who probably doesn't give it the care that I want, the the concern, they don't see it the way I see it, and they just undo everything I did. How many of you have lived long enough to see this happen? Let me see your hands. Oh my gosh, more of you than I would have guessed. Why do we even bother? And that's what Solomon says. What's the use? What's the use? And yet, 
he says earlier in the chapter, my hand is at work and all this work is good and it comes from the hand of God. And then he'll say in the next breath, and I hate it all. I hate it all. In fact, it, it, it feels like that when you read Ecclesiastes, there's a bit of whiplash going on. If you read it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It feels like Solomon is of two minds on almost every subject. That he embraces the, the beauty of something and then decries the, the vanity of it all or the futility of it all. And if you read his journal closely, and you might even have to go to some of 1 Kings to get all the context, you'll begin to understand at least a little bit of why. Here's what he says about his work. Same chapter. Here's what he says. He says, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for who? I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. There's a a sense that when you read about the work that Solomon engaged in, that most of his pursuits, whether it was this work or his political pursuits or the trade that he engaged in with other countries or building an economy for the country or even engaging in the construction of God's temple, which eventually led to the construction of many other temples for many other gods, that it was focused around him. This isn't exclusively the case, and our critique is gentle because we all find ourselves a mix of good and bad. But Solomon lets us see in his journal what happens when you allow one pursuit to rise to the top of all other values, and you place it on the throne, and you pursue it with all you've got. This is what it feels like Solomon did that he took, you name it, wealth, power, influence, pleasure, and he put it at the top of the food chain, and then he lived his life around that value to see if his life would become a life worth living. And if we learn anything from the book of Ecclesiastes is this, that any value that Solomon pursues in the book in the early portion of his life, or maybe even through the middle portions of his life, if you take any of those values and you place it as the chief end of your life, success, financial independence, you name it, even the legacy you might leave to your family, you place it as the chief end of your life, your life cannot sustain that as a worthy goal. You will find yourself Well, the same place Solomon found himself. Deeply empty, deeply desiring something that matters more. In fact, none of Solomon's pursuits can sustain a meaningful life, not one. Not even if you try to combine them and switch one up every week. You just can't do that. When you look at the whole of the story in Ecclesiastes and even using some of 1 Kings to to gain some critique of his life, it looks like that for Solomon, work was an end to itself. That it wasn't for 
others, on behalf of others. I, I don't know anybody that has an understanding of discipleship or their walk with God that doesn't make this mistake, but most of us also carry with us the sense that the purpose of our work is to make the world or life for others a better place, better for them, that we work towards these ends. And it doesn't matter what industry you're in, that your hope is to make things better in some way for other people, not just for yourself. This does not seem to be the value that Solomon held most of his life. He had himself a Well, as he says in Ecclesiastes, what every man would desire. And Kings makes this pretty clear, 1 Kings, that pleasure was a part of his life. But there's almost a complete absence of sacrificial love in his life. And then it seems and it appears as if, at least through a portion of his life, he had wealth without restraint or benevolent purposes. If you try to sort through and use Google searches to support your understanding of who has been over time throughout history the richest in in all of history uh, Solomon makes the top five in almost all the lists in most lists he gets to number one uh, the amount of gold that was brought to him as a tribute from other countries or through taxation of his people he was a heavy taxer he was a, a tax and spender okay we can put him whatever political party you want but that's what he did His wealth was astronomical. But there appears to be, apart from the the building of the temple and really uh, benefiting the palace and the areas that are near him as king, very little that happened in terms of benevolent purposes. This is who he was, his life and how he saw it. Collector of wisdom, he found his way into this place where he pursued these ends. But there were some things missing. And of course, in wisdom, retrospect, he would be the first to acknowledge that. Now, the conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes is is good. It feels like it lacks a bit of emotion, and it would for you too if you had lived a life in pursuit of so many things that you found unfulfilling. But his conclusion is this. So that's the whole story. It's the NLT version. Here is now my final conclusion. Let's all say it together. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. Now, for so many times that the scriptures say, do not fear, fear God can be a little confusing. Probably a better translation would be to revere God or to respect God or to have a sense that we know that God holds the entire universe in his hands and he is in all And all is in him. And so this revering or respecting God is key to Solomon, of course. And he knows this. And his humility is evident throughout his life in spite of his wealth and power and position and prestige. But then he says, and so we obey his commands for this is everyone's duty. And so a sobering reflection on life and how it all comes together piece by piece what the pursuit of your life is, most of us would say, we know better than to pursue pleasure as an end to itself, but we just do that in pockets to make it through the day. Most of us know better than to pursue financial gain, but financial independence, we would say, that's our goal. Most of us know better than to make any one of these things the chief end of our life, 
but we use each one to help us get where we need to go, missing the lesson of Solomon, that none of these pursuits are enough to sustain a meaningful life. And so if you're building a way to reflect on your life, the lessons of Solomon provide not just a map, but also a destination. And it's not just his words that we use along the way. Because the question that you ought to ask when it says in Ecclesiastes 12, when Solomon writes, obey his commands, well, which ones? Because, my goodness, in the Jewish Torah, just the written Torah that we have, our Old Testament, the first five books of Scripture, there are 613 commands. And we know the first 10, beyond that, we get a little fuzzy about the rest of them. So what would it mean? Which is why we also pointed you to Luke chapter 10 over the last week. Jesus has a conversation with a a teacher of the law. And in this conversation, the teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, "Uh, I want to know how to have a meaningful life. Your translation says, how do I inherit eternal life? Which we have read to mean the man asked, how do I get to heaven? That's not what he asked. He asked, how do I have a life that is rich and full and meaningful? And Jesus says, how do you read the law? And the man answered this way. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Those two statements come from that list of 613 commands in the Old Testament. Both of those statements are in the Torah. Jesus heard this man's assessment of his summary of the law and simply said this to him. What did he say? Right. Right. Nailed it. That's right. Now, there's another discussion that ensues about who his neighbor is and about what love looks like, but I don't want you to miss this. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, love seems to be conspicuously absent. He pursues, he builds, he experiences pleasure, food, work, all of these things, but there's very few things you read about love. And I'm not talking about the emotional sense of love, or even the devotion side of love that we consider, but the understanding of love in the New Testament, which is a practical expression of wanting what's best for other people or surrender to God. But love is the operative verb in the two commandments that are listed in Luke chapter 10. Now, this wasn't an unusual answer that the man gave. There's a bunch of Jewish people that had subscribed to this view of life and had thoughtfully distilled all 613 commands into these two ideas. And Jesus says, you are right. You were right. And so, if you're going to consider your life, wonder, who are you becoming? Love has to play a part, doesn't it? In fact, it's got to be the central part that's played. And thankfully, there are a couple passages, three or four really, in the New Testament that give us deep and thoughtful texture about what this love looks like. And so our hope will be over the next two weeks, next week we'll introduce a prayer to you that might be new to many of you that you might want to make a part of your daily reflection. And then we'll allow two, three passages in the New Testament that will give us a texture of what this love looks like. That if you are wanting to build this habit into your life of thoughtful reflection every day, that you'll have some incredibly detailed pieces of scripture 
that will help you understand and know exactly what love looks like according to Jesus and those that attempt to practice it. But our hope, of course, is that we would be always driven back to this verse. And so let's, before we pray, let's all say it together. We'll start at the top. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. So let's spend a moment in prayer together. So Lord, we end today asking this question that we've seen on the screen already, and it's this simple one. Who are we becoming? So Lord, at the beginning of this series, we focused in on a few verses from Psalm 139 that says, Lord, you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I stand. I can't even escape your presence. And so we recognize that your presence is here in this place right now. And we want to ask this question uh, that your spirit may give us some insight. Who are we becoming? And so just in the quietness of the moment, you can ask that question of God and in his gentleness and the fullness of his love, I believe God will answer. Lord, who am I becoming? Lord, I bet I have some values that need to be tweaked. I bet the influences around me might be uh, shoving me toward valuing some of the things that Solomon valued that he found ultimately empty and meaningless. Lord, am I, come, am I becoming more uh, surrendered to you or more independent from you? Lord, am I more judgmental of those around me or more patient and loving to those around me? so grateful for a journal like Ecclesiastes and the humility of Solomon to give us a cautionary tale about a life built on things that are at times quite meaningless but we also recognize that you have given us the gift of work and the gift of pleasure and the gift of resources and money Lord, we pray that as we live this week, they would be in their proper places, 
that you alone would be on the throne of our hearts, that when our values seem to grow a bit askew, that we'll be thoughtful and slow enough, reflective enough to catch those those bumps in the road. Lord, what we want more than anything else is for our efforts in our workplaces, the nature of the relationships that we have, to be characterized by the love of Jesus, that we would love in thoughtful ways, selflessly, that your kingdom would grow a little bit more in each of us every day. Lord, this week as we engage in good work and with our families and friends and the people around us, we pray that you would give us gentle nudges when we step off the path, bring us back to center, help us to be like your son Jesus in this world, bringing your kingdom about. May we be a blessing to those around us. May we be a bit of your presence in a dark place. And as we do this together, Lord, may you slowly transform wherever we take your light. We pray that we would do this knowing and believing that your love is enough for us, that we belong to you, that we are forgiven, loved, and received as your children. Lord, help us to stay in this place of thoughtful reflection, open to hear your voice, walking with you every step of the way.